0: My name is Greg Voight. I'm the senior pastor here at Woodland Hills Church. It's really good to see all of you here on this uh, bristly Sunday morning. I, I'm, I appreciate Seth filling in last week. Uh, I just appreciate him being on the team. What I like about Seth, among the many other things, is that his style is so different from me. Uh, he, he's kind of got this quiet Buddhist thing about him. I, I'm a little more on the hyper side, but uh, I, it's really good to have it from different perspective and different styles. Amen. So I appreciate that. For the last two weeks, I've been having this stuff. <laughs> Think of the right word. Flinny's coughing. I still have a little bit of, a, of it, so if I, if I cough up a furball or something this morning, just ignore me and uh, we'll get back on track, <coughs> for example. I, I, oh, that's nothing. You should hear it when it gets going. I'm in that productive stage. You know those productive coughs? Oh, yeah, all right. We really encourage people to have cross-cultural experiences, because the kingdom is, is, is multicultural. And here's a, here's a chance for that. Latino worship event <clears throat> on Friday, February 1st, from 6 to 8.30, uh, hosted by Puente de Vida. And that, that's a, a Latino church that we partner with. So we encourage you to uh, check that out, be a part of that. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Luke. Uh, I want to say, I also announce, uh, in case this is the message that gets put up on the website, For all the podcasters, podritioners, we love you, podritioners. We've got roughly 9,000 podritioners a week who download messages. And uh, you need to know that that we now have the sermons available with video. So you get to look at my pretty face when I'm preaching, not just listening to my uh, phlegmy voice. And so uh, if you want to do that, uh, just be aware that that is going on. Also, uh, this is Martin Luther King weekend, and um, I I just want to take a moment to just acknowledge him. Uh, You know, I was watching the news, as I always do every night, but the other day, and as is happening a lot lately, and will continue to happen for the next 10 months, and which will continue to irritate me for the next 10 months, but it's all about the presidential elections, as you know, and uh, they had Barack Obama on there. Uh, He was giving a a talk, and it it just caused me to reflect once again on this. That for the first time in history, we have got an African-American man who's a viable candidate for the presidency of the United States. And that is a—I don't care what you think about his politics. I, I, I could care less about that. But the fact that that is happening is beautiful and marvelous. And that would not be happening if Martin Luther King didn't do what he did 40 years ago. Uh, he, he laid the groundwork at great cost to himself— uh, to, 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 to change the, the contours of this country. And more than just a beautiful social movement, which it was, what really impresses me about Martin Luther King is that he, he incorporated the kingdom into what he was doing. Uh, if you read the speeches that he gave before uh, he had led people on marches, he very explicitly based everything he did on Jesus Christ. And he told the marchers over and over again, I don't want you marching in this if you have hatred towards your oppressor. Uh, I don't want you marching in this unless you are marching not just for your personal freedom, but for the freedom of the oppressor. I don't want you marching in this unless you can genuinely say that you're doing it out of love for your enemy. Because Martin Luther King understood what we all have to understand. That is that the only thing that can actually eradicate evil rather than just temporarily suppress it is the power of self-sacrificial love. It's the power of Calvary love, and that's what makes this guy a great man. Uh, He he took kingdom principles and turned it into a mass movement. So thank you, Dr. Martin Luther King. Amen. We're in Luke chapter 11, and we're going to finish up our our series on the Lord's Prayer as it's found in Luke. And I want to entitle this message rather ominously, Can God Trust You? Can God Trust You? It says one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just like John taught his disciples. Jesus said to him, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And, and this is the passage we're going to look at today, Lead us not into temptation. Lead us not into, into temptation. Pray with me here for a moment. Lord, uh, this is a difficult passage. I pray you help us to use all of our mind to struggle with this, to do it with integrity and authenticity, to worship you with our mind that you've given us. And that means thinking. Thinking. And Lord, I pray that you use this thinking to build your kingdom, open our hearts and our minds for the invasion of your kingdom, that we'd walk out of here more thoroughly dedicated to your kingdom than we were when we came. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. This is a a, a very difficult passage. Uh, it's funny because we probably many of us in this room have prayed this prayer many, many times. Lead us not t- into temptation. Without realizing that it is, maybe without realizing what it really means. And it is genuinely difficult. As I got into this, uh, I was actually hoping that Seth would preach on it next last week so I wouldn't have to preach on it, but he didn't, the weenie. Uh, and so, so I've got to deal with it. This is a very difficult passage. So that means this message is going to be a teaching message. It's one that you're going to have to put your thinking caps on. Uh, it's not going to be the kind of message where you get warm fuzzies and want to run the aisles and shout hallelujah. Uh, some messages are maybe like that, but this isn't one of them. This is one of these thinking passages. And what we do at Hills Church is just verse by verse wrestle with the text. And this is a, a difficult text. Lead us not into temptation. What are we asking God to do? Here's what the text certainly does not mean. And then we'll try to figure out what it does mean. It doesn't mean that we're supposed to ask God not to tempt us. See, sometimes I I think we think like that. Here's what the text does not mean. I'll illustrate it. Um, When I was a new Christian, I'd been a Christian about six months, Uh, I was dating this girl up in, uh, I was a senior in high school, and she was a uh, uh, first year in uh, St. Cloud State uh, University. And I was dating her. And so one weekend I went up to visit her. And we, we kept it godly. I don't want any rumors, whatever. I, I, I stayed in a different dorm and all that. But uh, I went to visit her for a couple of days. So I went up on Friday, was going to come back on Sunday. My dad had told me uh, that I, I needed to keep the tank full because we were in one of these deep freezes that Minnesota goes through. You may have heard about it. Uh, but this is back in the 70s before we got blessed with global warming. So we had deep freezes. that now, now we're crying because it's gone on for 50 hours without getting above zero. Back in the 70s, oh, we'd go weeks without getting above zero. And we liked it that way. <laughs> that was back in the days when you had to be tough to be a Minnesotan. Now it's just... Okay, anyways. So we were in the middle of one of these deep freezes. Hadn't got above zero for a while. And he said, Greg, make sure that when you park your car, you have a full tank of gas because you're driving this junker and it's going to freeze. The tank's going to freeze. It's going to be a mess. So I drive up to St. Cloud State and park my car. And of course, I forget to fill it up. In fact, it was on empty. On Sunday, I go to start the car and nothing's happening. This thing is, the tank is just frozen. On top of that, I had lost my wallet. Uh, and so I had to call my father who had to drive up to St. Cloud State and help me out with this frozen car. He was not happy. But get up there, not much is open on Sunday. We had to find the special kind of fluid that you pour into the tank to, you know, to de-ice it or whatever. Finally got that going, had to search for a couple of hours to, to find the right stuff. He's very, very mad. Get the car going. Uh, we're now driving home, and we stop at McDonald's to eat. He says, Greg, keep the car running because, you know, I, I, I don't want to risk it not starting again. So we get inside of McDonald's, and we're eating, and my father just says, you didn't lock your doors, did you? All of a sudden I realized I did lock my car doors. And my dad says, then how are you going to get back into the car? The, car, the keys are locked in the car and the car is running. This is marvelous, Greg. <laughs> He's madder than a hornet. We've got to now fa- find a, a coat hanger to break into the car. That's hard to do when you're in a McDonald's. Finally got a coat hanger and finally broke into the car. I had to destroy the rubber in the windows. There's was an old junker, so that was back in the days when you could do that, where he had to shimmy in there. It's so cold. He's swearing eight swear words a second Well, you know, we're, we're, we're getting at this thing. He's so mad. Finally, we get in there. He takes off for home. There's something I had to do, and he says, make sure that you're not late. So he takes off, uh, drives home. I get in the car, and I get a long ways behind him where I can't see him any, any, any longer. Uh, and I end up getting lost. I'd only been up to St. Cloud State uh, once before, and on the way home I got lost. He gave me directions just in case, but I, I missed a turn or something, and, I, and now it's getting dark so I can't see that all that well, and I'm lost. I don't even know if I'm going in the right direction. I start praying to God. I'm a new Christian now. And I'm, I'm asking God, oh God, you know, give me directions here. Where am I supposed to be going? Where is this 10, highway 10 turn off he talked about, and, and, and I have no idea where I'm going. And I'm getting madder and madder. Now, the first six months of my Christian life had been dedicated to not swearing. I, I grew up with my father, who was the most creative swearer in the world, and I learned that from him, and when I would ever get irritated at all, it would start coming out just like I did with him. But I was really trying to kick that habit. And uh, now I'm getting angry and frustrated and mad, and I'm in so much trouble, and I'm asking God to help me, but God's not helping me, and I'm getting loster and loster and loster. <laughs> And finally, at one point, I said, you want me to swear, don't you, God? You want me to swear. I know You're trying to get me to swear. Fine! (laughs) And then I'm pounding on the steering wheel and let out about 25 seconds of undiluted cursing. Just let six months' worth of stored-up swearing pop out, (laughs) like I'm popping a pimple or something. Uh, Not my most mature moment, I'll I'll grant that. Uh, I, I finally did see a sign that I recognized Twin Cities that way and I was about 40 miles off course but I finally did uh, make it home and got into a whole lot of trouble but see I, I blamed God for tempting me that's not what this passage means sometimes people do that uh, you know we, we, we blame it on God No know a guy rather recently who had uh, fallen off the wagon trying to kick the drinking habit and fell off the wagon and he blamed it on God he so said I'd gone three days of, of clean sobriety and God virtually put a beer bottle right in front of me what am I supposed to do? Well, see, the Bible tells us that God doesn't tempt people. Here's what it says in in James chapter 1. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. Don't ever say that. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each of you is tempted when you are dragged away by your own evil desire and enticed. God doesn't tempt anyone ever. He just doesn't do that. We're we're tempted by the the weaknesses and the evil desires in our own heart. I cultivated a lifelong habit of swearing. God didn't do that. Uh, I was the one who, who forgot to put gas in my tank. God didn't do that. I was the one who lost my wallet. God didn't do that. And I was the one who got lost. God didn't do that. God wasn't setting me up. Now, there is a power in this universe that does set us up. His name is Satan. He's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he knows your weaknesses, and so he may be tempting you. But God doesn't tempt people. Never say that God tempts people. So, what does it mean when Jesus tells us to pray, lead us not in, into temptation? If God never tempts us, why, do we at, why are we praying that prayer? One explanation, in fact, it's a... A very common explanation, in fact, it's probably the most common explanation, is to say that what the verse really means is uh, God protect us from temptation, uh, don't allow us to be te- uh, to to be tempted, which really isn't a nice explanation. And a lot of the commentators say that that's what it means, uh, and if I, I wish I could just say that's what it means, we can move on to the next verse. The trouble is, that's most certainly not what the text means. The word for lead us in Greek is in the active voice, not the passive voice. So it can't be translated, God, don't allow us to fall into evil. It is active. God is the one who does it. In fact, the word actually means to carry. God, don't carry us into temptation. Uh, so as much as I, I wish I could say it means well, don't don't you know don't allow us to fall into evil. I wish I could say that, but I've got to deal with the text, and the text doesn't say that. So what does the text mean? Maybe we'll have more luck figuring out what this text means by looking not at the word lead us, but look at the word temptation. Now the word temptation in Greek is parasmos. Parasmos. Remember that word, perasmos, and it can mean temptation. But it can also mean testing or trial. Testing or trial. And there's there's a significant difference between those two things. When someone puts you into a parosmos and they want you to fall, that's a temptation. When a person puts you in parosmos and they want you to succeed, that's a testing. The difference has to do with motive. Parosmos means two different things depending on the agent, the motive of the person who is putting you into parosmos. God never tempts us because God is never trying to get us to fall. But God does test us because he always wants us to succeed and to learn and to grow. In fact, you find in the Bible, testing is found all over the place. Here's an example of it. Deuteronomy chapter uh, 8. Moses says to the children of Israel, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble you and test you in order to know. God wanted to know what was in your heart, which is to say he wanted to know whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had ever known. And he did all that to teach you that people do not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Okay, so for 40 years, God fed the the children of Israel with supernatural manna from heaven. That's how they stayed alive. God always gave them one day's worth of food, and he commanded them, don't collect more food than for that day. And the reason God did that is he was trying to teach them uh, how to trust him. He wanted the children of Israel to get out of their slave mindset into a kingdom mindset, into a trusting God mindset. People who have been in slavery, or what is virtually the same thing, people who have gone through abject poverty, sometimes come out of it with a sense that since since the future is uncertain, we've got to hoard everything right now. We've got to save everything right now. My stepmother was like that. She came out of the Depression, and it it somehow jarred her, and, and she... I hated spending money on anything. She just always wanted to save and preserve things, and she rationed everything, including how much toilet paper you could use for, with every bowel movement. It was crazy. Uh, everything was rationed. She just was like this pack crack because you never know what the future's going to bring, so you've got to have some, some stuff in reserve. My dad also went through the depression just as bad, but he came up with the opposite mindset. Since the future's uncertain and we've got a little bit of money now, let's spend. <laughs> you know, and they had a very interesting marriage uh, because of that. He was always buying things, and my stepmother was always mad at him for doing it. Uh, so the, the children of Israel came out with this, this mindset of, of we've got to preserve uh, uh, for the future. And God it was trying to say, trust me. Look, at every day, do you see the pattern here? I give you this day your daily bread. Trust me for it. And the reason he was doing that is because he wanted to you put the children of Israel into the promised land and use them in a historically monumental way. The the flow of history hung upon this people being a faithful people in the promised land. There's no point in getting them in the promised land if they're still thinking like slaves. So God was trying to train them to be faithful covenant partners. And that involved testing. Every time God would give them a daily bread, he was really asking the question, I want to know if you're going to obey me or not. Do you get it? Do you get it? Uh, Will you trust me? And in doing this, he was preparing them for kingdom service. That's what testing is all about. If you're a smart parent, you do the same thing. A smart parent has, ha, gives their kids enough freedom so that their choices will be tested. I've known parents who've tried to do risk-free parenting, where you try to protect your kids from the possibility of making wrong decisions. And, and parents, listen to me on this one, that will sh- most certainly backfire on you. Kids need to develop a character whereby they own their own decisions. And that means within reason, they have to have the capacity be given opportunities to make bad decisions. Otherwise, they can't make meaningful good decisions. And so you've got to give them a little bit of freedom. My wife and I, we had a policy, and I think it was a good one. We always defaulted to trust. We would always trust our kids unless they gave us reasons not to trust them. Uh, we gave them freedom. Some people thought we were a little too uh, lenient, too liberal in that, but, but we, we'd give them freedom. And when they would screw up and misuse that freedom, then we'd crack down on them. Uh, but we'd always default to, to trust. My daughter, Danae, my oldest daughter, who is very much like me in her personality in many ways, for better or for worse, uh, she's a marvelous young lady now. I'm so proud of her. She's a great parent uh, and, and all of that. But between the ages of 13 and 16, not so much. <laughs> uh, they, 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 were, they were rather tough times. She went through a, a bad patch, let's say. Oh, we needed the grace of God. And so sometimes she would uh, act out in ways. We, we, There's a period of time where we, we caught her smoking and we caught her drinking. And it was really weird because she was also a track star, but she was doing all this other kind of stuff, which was exactly what I did. I, I was uh, in track and ran long distance, but I was also doing all this other stuff, way worse than she ever did that I never told her that. I always acted like it was the end of the world when I caught her smoking, and inside I'm going, thank God it was only cigarettes. Yeah. <laughs> She's Just seen what I was doing when I was her age. But kids don't need to know everything about you. Not, not, now they know, but not then. So, so we, we took away her privileges. But slowly she earned them back. You know, you, you, there has to be an end point to your punishments. And so you, know, you, you don't want to break their spirit. You give them hope. And so after a month or so of grounding, uh, you know, she had been really good, and, and, and she wanted to go to a party. Uh, It was actually at a a youth, uh, uh, a teen club. And uh, so we said, well, Danae, can we trust you? Are are you to the point where you've learned and and can we trust you now? She goes, oh, yeah, 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 I I, I promise. So I uh, drove her and her friends to the youth club, to Teen Center, and dropped them off and uh, said, okay, I'll pick you up at 11 o'clock. But now I'm giving this freedom here, but I am testing her. I'm not tempting her because I want her to succeed, but I am testing her. I'm, getting, I'm letting her do what she wants to do, and it's a test. So I don't come back at 11 o'clock. I come back at 10 o'clock. I'm a smart man. And I sit way in the back, in the corner. <laughs> And I'm just kind of, you know, just observing things. Want to hear the nice music and all of that. And I'm just kind of looking through the crowd here, and there, I'm looking for my daughter. And finally, I see lovely Danae coming out of the girls' bathroom with her eight friends, who look exactly like she looked. They all had the exact same hair, doing everything, and they're all holding their cigarettes. And they just come out there and they, they all get in their room and they're all just kind of doing this or that or the other thing. Now, I don't believe in humiliating your, 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 your uh, children in front of other children, uh, so I don't step up to the plate right then. I uh, act like I show up at 11 o'clock and I drive her and her friends home. I did make a note in the car. I said, Gosh, it smells like cigarette smoke. And these little hypocrites, they're all like, Oh, yeah, some of the kids were smoking and they're so gross. Uh, <laughs> I'm thinking, you little hypocrites. <laughs> uh, I tell you, I tell you. But, okay, so then when I got home, I killed my daughter, of course. You know, that's just what, uh, she was grounded, grounded for life. But see, it, it, was, it was a test. I wasn't tempting her, uh, but I was testing her. And, and, and we need to do that. Parents need to do that. That's basically what, what, what God does. Out of his love, he, he tests us. Because he wants us to grow. He's refining us. He wants to build our character. And with each test, he's really asking the question, can you prove yourself trustworthy in kingdom service? And, and with each test that we pass, with every right decision we make, our character becomes more kingdom formed. And, and the more our character is kingdom formed, the more equipped we are for kingdom service. You may might remember the parable of the talents. Uh, that Jesus taught. A uh, talent was just a, uh, a monetary unit in the first century. And they, Jesus tells the story of this master who gives his servants uh, some 10 talents, one, uh, some f- five, and another one one. And he's testing them. He wants to see what they're going to do with this money. He goes away for a while, and when he comes back, he says, okay, what'd you do with my money? And the, the, the one guy didn't do anything with it, and so he gets the money taken away from him. But the other two doubled it, and so they get rewarded. And here's what Jesus says. His master replied to one of the faithful servants. He says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. You've proven yourself trustworthy. Come and share your master's happiness. Now, here's a very important teaching. What Jesus is giving us here is is, is the truth that the key to moving in greater levels of kingdom service and the key to being given more responsibility in the kingdom, the key to being able to make a greater impact in the kingdom, and the key to developing a greater capacity to experience the joy of the kingdom, all hangs on us making the right decisions in moments where we're being tested. God has given you gifts, and God's given you talents, and God's given you resources. God's given you time, and there is a calling on your life because we're all called to ministry. And God is every day asking the question, what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? And every day there are multitudes of decisions we make whereby we answer that question. In little ways and in big ways. There's a neighbor on your block that you know about who's a shut-in and no one goes to visit her. And the Lord is calling you to be one of the people once a week or once a month or something that visits th- this lady. That's a kingdom thing. But of course that means you've got to sacrifice a little of your time. What are you going to do? That's a test. That's a test. And God wants you to succeed. But he's asking the question, are you going to prove yourself trustworthy? Can I trust you with this level of responsibility? You get a, new, you get a big bonus for, for Christmas. Christmas. And the Lord is saying, hey, you know what? I want you to invest that with these poor folks and this much in the kingdom and this much you can keep to yourself. But there's a part of you that says, I want the whole thing because now I can buy that new platinum TV or whatever they're called. F- plastic TV or pl- what's it called? The fancy ones that are flat and big and, and, and plasma, plasma TV. Is that it? I don't know. Ah, this technology, I can't figure out. out. You know, so th- this is a test. This is a test. There's multitudes of decisions like that. God is maybe telling some people here, I want you to stop back at the table and pick up one of those life kits and support this missions trip. That's a little test. Are you going to do that or not? Because you only got 15 bucks in your wallet and you want to go out to Chipotle after service. What are you going to do? I mean, these these little decisions are actually very important because if God can't trust you with the little stuff, how's He going to trust you with the big stuff? You're doing taxes. And every year, you cut corners because you know that you can't get caught, and and it saves you a little bit of money, and you don't think Uncle Sam deserves it anyways, and I totally get that, but it's about honesty, and the Bible says obey the laws of the land, and so this is a test. God is now convicting you of that, saying, look it, I see what you're doing, even if no one else does. Will you be honest here? Be honest about what you earned, and and, uh, uh, obey the laws of the land. It's a little test, and we can't minimize that because those little tests are the stepping stones to more responsibility and more joy in the kingdom. The more we respond in kingdom ways to the many decisions we've got to make in life, the greater our capacity to take on responsibility for the kingdom, the greater our impact for the kingdom, and the more you begin to move in the reality of the kingdom, the joy of the kingdom, the peace of the kingdom, you're becoming a kingdom person. But it all hangs on what we do with these moment-by-moment tests that we're given. Now, let me... Uh, take a moment to avoid three misunderstandings, three possible misunderstandings. One is this this testing is not about proving to God that you are worth saving. Okay, this is not about your salvation. You're saved because of what Jesus did, not because of what you did. And we're not supposed to be jumping through hoops to prove to God that we're worthy of being saved because none of us are worthy of being saved. Uh, We're saved because of our trust in Jesus Christ. The testing is about our developing a kingdom character and making us fit for service and increasing our capacity for joy. It's not about our salvation. Secondly, God tests us, but that doesn't mean that every test we go through in life was a God-orchestrated test. In fact, most of the tests that we go through are, are, are the result of choices that we make and choices that other people make. Now, God uses these to see if we're going to remain faithful uh, as covenant partners. God uses these to refine our characters, but it doesn't mean that God was behind the scenes orchestrating that particular test as though God's going to control all of your choices and, and other people's choices. He responds to the choices that you and others make to see if you're going to be a kingdom person or not and to refine your character, but he didn't bring it about, which leads to a third very, very important a misunderstanding to avoid. God does test us. But it doesn't mean that every hardship we go through is God testing us. I knew a lady a number of years ago whose daughter, teenage daughter, was killed by a drunk driver. And um, her pastor, God bless him, he was well-intentioned. But he said to her, well, you know, you must be a real warrior for for God because God will never test us beyond what we are able to handle. And this, understandably, uh, enraged this woman towards God. God. You mean God killed my kid to put me through a test? And it's because I'm so strong, he knew I could handle it? I wish I had lived my life being very, very weak. Thank you very much. And she got a picture in her mind, and, and you can understand this, of, of some kind of a, uh, like a Nero, uh, some kind of twisted, tyrannical uh, king in the ancient world who, who has got loyal subjects and picks out one of those subjects and says, all right, will you remain loyal to me under all conditions? And they say, yes, because oh, I want to test that. And so he takes out one of your kids and shoots him. Shoots he says, now will you still remain loyal to me? I mean, it, it, it just really jaded this lady's picture of God. Now, it's true, of course, that God will never test us, beyond what we are able to handle. That's true. But nowhere in the Bible does it say that every hardship we go through is such a test. A very important distinction to make. The, 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 the nightmarish hardships we go through are the result of the fact that we live in a war-torn creation uh, that is populated with free agents, human and angelic. And free agents sometimes make dumb and sometimes make evil decisions which have very nightmarish impact for other people. Now, of course, God is involved in that. God will use that to redeem, bring redemptive kingdom value out of that. It doesn't catch God by surprise. Of course not. Uh, God's got a plan in place to turn this for good. That's all true. But it doesn't mean that God was involved in bringing that situation about. Very important if we're going to keep a Jesus-looking picture of God in our mind. If I, this afternoon, which I promise you I won't do, but if I decide to go home and get drunk and get behind the wheel and go out driving and I end up killing some kid, that's about me, it's not about God. Uh, God didn't make me get drunk. I did that. God didn't make me get behind a wheel. I, 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 I did that. And God didn't make me hit this kid. I did that. I suspect the Holy Spirit was screaming the whole time, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, but I've got free will and I can go my own way if I I choose to. Now God will use that and bring whatever redemptive value out of it and he's a genius at that, but that doesn't mean that the kid was killed to put the parents through a test. God tests us, but not everything is a God-orchestrated test. Amen. Okay, now, I'm sure you will agree that that is all wonderful, brilliant kingdom insight. Amen? All right. The trouble is, the trouble is, we still haven't explained the text. In fact, in some ways, we've just made it more difficult. Because now we've got to wonder, if testing is so important for our character development and for our growth and even increasing our capacity for joy, why would Jesus tell us to ask God not to put us through it? Lord, lead us not into testing. Even though we know it's good for us, even though it will increase our capacity, even though we know it will build our character. Uh, what are we supposed to do with that? I don't know. Go home figure it out. I, what, you guys are always looking to me for answers. Why? i got to answer everything. Okay, well this is what I get paid to do. So here, tell you what. I did a little research. I'm going to give you three options here. And they're not mutually exclusive and all of them have some degree of plausibility. What does it mean when, when we pray, Lord, lead us not into what I believe it should be translated a time of testing? Okay, some would say, some commentators would say, well, look at testings are not pleasant. And so it's just a normal human thing to say, please don't make us go through that. And even though we know we need it, it's, it's, we're just being honest with God when we say, please don't lead us into that. It's just a, a, you know, a human prayer. Uh, and that's a possibility. But on the other hand, it strikes me as odd that Jesus would encourage us to pray a prayer that we know God's not going to answer. Even though we, we know you're going to do it, please don't have us go through testing. I, I, I just have a little... Plus, the Bible says, count it all joy when you go through testings. So Lord, we know that it will give us joy, but please don't lead us into joy. I, I just can't quite... It's possible, but I, I'm not uh, terribly convinced of that one. A second option I think is very plausible, but it will also strike modern people as rather strange. So listen to me on this one. Many scholars argue that the parasmos, the time of testing that Jesus is talking about, is not parasmos in general, but a particular kind of parasmos. We're not saying, Lord, uh, keep us from the unpleasantness of, of, of testings in general, but please keep us from a particular kind of testing. Here's the background on this. We know that parosmos was used by uh, uh, Jews of the first century, by many of them, to refer to a specific testing that was going to happen at the end of the age. Uh, Most Jews of the time believed, and this is certainly found in the New Testament, that at the end of the age, uh, 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 Satan would throw his best stuff at the earth. Literally all hell would break loose. God would intervene. There'd be a tremendous battle. Uh, God versus Satan, good angels versus bad angels, and God's people versus the evil people. Uh, And and they saw this end time sort of apocalyptic uh, thing happening. And they believed that that would be a time of tremendous parasmos, tremendous testing and many they thought would fall away and so if that's what Jesus is referring to and if you put it in this historical context it very well could be then what Jesus is saying is and ask pray that God uh, doesn't have you go through that end time testing now many scholars argue that that end time testing in the New Testament anyways isn't about the end of the world it rather has to do with the end of the world as the Jews knew it Uh, uh, the end of Judaism as the Jews of the first century knew it because in 70 AD the temple was destroyed Jerusalem was destroyed and Jews were kicked out of Jerusalem and that really brought an end to the age of temple Judaism that Judaism that was centered on Jerusalem and on the temple and on animal sacrifices all that came to an end in 70 AD when the Romans viciously crushed the Jews and and, and kicked them out uh, out of Jerusalem and many scholars argue that that is the end of the age that Jesus and others are talking about in the New Testament and they use language that looks like it's about the end of the world because that was standard symbolic talk of the first century. It's called apocalyptic language. One thing that gives that credence is that Jesus, when he's talking about the wars and rumors of wars and, and, and uh, you know, all of this nasty end-time stuff, he says in Matthew uh, 24, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. The wars, the rumors of war, the moon turning to blood, the sky being darkened, and all that kind of stuff. He says that his generation wouldn't pass away until all these things were fulfilled. And so that, that it, it, many scholars argue that it looks like a symbolic way of talking about the destruction that happened in 70 AD. But other, other scholars disagree with that. Either way, it would apply to us this way. We know that when the Lord comes back, it's going to be rather unpleasant. There's, whatever is not consistent with God's character is going to be purged and judged. And, and, and the Bible does talk about that, uh, being judged by fire, 2 Peter chapter 3. And so in the, if this interpretation is right, what we're to be asking God for is keep us from the end time havoc that's going to enter in on this world. Okay, a third thing is this. The third possibility, which is not incompatible with these first two, is this. And this is one I find to have the most force. We've seen throughout our study of the Lord's Prayer that we're not just asking God for things, but we're also in the process of doing that, pledging ourselves to be a certain kind of people. We're, we're, we're pledging ourselves to be the kind of people through whom the things we're asking God for get done. So for example, when we prayed Hallowed, uh, when we studied, "Hallowed be your name," we saw several weeks ago that part of what's involved in that is the pledge that we're going to keep your name holy. Lord, we're, going to keep your name, we're not going to let your name get mixed up with all sorts of mundane uh, pagan stuff and politics and the things of that sort. Keep your name separate, holy. And when, when, when we pray, God, uh, uh, Lord, let your kingdom come, we saw several weeks ago that part of that is a pledge to be a kingdom person and therefore the means by which God's kingdom comes. So also, to pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation, is to pledge to be the kind of person, lead us not into testing, is the pleasure to be the kind of person that no longer needs to be tested. Uh, it, it really is just the flip side of saying, Lord, let your kingdom come. Because if you're the kind of person through which God's kingdom comes, to that degree, you're not going to need to be tested. Because the only purpose for a testing is to make you a kingdom person. See how this goes? And so we're saying, Lord, uh, make me the kind of person that no longer needs to be tested. Uh, yes, there's decisions we'll make every day, but Lord, let my character be such that I do those things that should be done automatically without having to go through this pull in both directions. And our goal is to have our kingdom formed in that way. Lord, lead us not into this time of testing and help us to become the kind of people who no longer need it. I want to end by just returning back to the opening question. Can God trust you? The reality is this. We, like the children of Israel, are in the wilderness stage of existence. The promised land is yet ahead of us. And this is the time of testing. This is the time when we, f- we form our character. This is the time where God is waiting to see whether we'll, we'll, we'll become faithful covenant partners. And so we, ha- we need to frame our decisions in life in these lines. We need to take, be aware that there is no deci- there's nothing in our life that is so small that God is not concerned with it. In fact, sometimes it's the very, very small things that are the most important. Because if we can't pass the small test, he's never going to make us responsible for the bigger ones. And so the question I want to ask us is this. In fact, would you close your eyes and let the Holy Spirit help you answer this question. Is there an area of life that you are now being tested in? And will you prove yourself a covenant, a faithful covenant partner with God by how you respond to this test? God is not tempting you, but he is testing you. And it may be the result of decisions you've made or decisions other people have made, but it's still a test. I want you right now to ask God to show you one thing, at least one thing, it can be more if you want, but one area where you have a decision to make about whether it's going to be, whether you're going to go a kingdom way, or a different way. The Holy Spirit revealed to us what we need to know. Teach us here. And when you see that, would you just simply pledge to making the kingdom decision? It may have to do with your taxes, it may have to do with little white lies that you tell your spouse about something, it may be something much more significant. Holy Spirit, seal it in our hearts and help us to pledge in that specific area to be a kingdom person. Lord, I pray for all the decisions that are made right now. I pray, Lord God, that, uh, Lord, we'd be attentive to the big and the little things in our life that are testings. And Holy Spirit, empower us to walk faithful with you, to never minimize or poo-hoo the little things, but rather to show integrity in the little decisions and in the big decisions. Help us to thoroughly submit everything, big and little, in our life over to you, that your kingdom may come on earth as it is in heaven, and build us to be the kind of people who eventually no longer need to be tested like this, but rather we make these right decisions automatically. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Praise God. If uh, you would like to have prayer for any need whatsoever, our prayer teams will be up here, and I encourage you to come forward and get whatever prayer you need. Uh, Don't forget the focus ministry that is going down south to help out the victims of uh, Hurricane Katrina. God bless you guys. Go out and build the kingdom. Be faithful covenant partners.